Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name is David Pembroke, and thank you for joining me. Actually, thank you for, for joining me on a, where we step back in time. Uh, prior to GovComs, we had a podcast called In Transition, and it ran for a number of years, talking about exactly the same things that we do talk about on GovComs, but that was the, uh, the original name that we came up with. Um, so today, um, as a bit of a, a treat, um, we're reaching back five years uh, to the 14th of April 2015 to a conversation I had with Carmel McGregor, who is a distinguished Australian uh, public servant. She had recently left the public service and has since gone on to do you know, a large amount of consulting and also being involved in academia and other things. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. She's a very bright person and uh, achieved a lot during her career and some of the insights I think you'll find just as relevant today as they were five years ago. And it's a nice thought to think that five years on, we're still making uh, GovComs or in transition. So plenty more to talk about in the years ahead. But for the moment, let's go back to the 14th of April, 2015 and my conversation with Carmel McGregor. Carmel, hello. Hi, David. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. Carmel, rather than me go through the Carmel McGregor story, the distinguished story, and the, you've really had a, a great career, take us through it. Well, how long have we got? <laughs> no, <laughs> Plenty no. of time. Uh, well, I've, I retired last year, as you said. Uh, I joined oh, many years ago in Queensland, moved down to Canberra. Uh, a bit of political asylum at the time from Joe Peterson, and I was in the employment department then. Uh, long story short, played around with labour market policy programs, vocational education, then went along to Centrelink, was one of the lead executives there, which was at the creation of Centrelink. Uh, hardship posting in Paris shortly after <laughs> that and worked at the OECD uh, a, little bit, a little bit. Uh, and then came back and uh, went over to immigration after the uh, sort of organisational failure noted through the Palmer and Common Reviews, went into the sort of cultural transformation and client service stuff. So I actually spent a lot of time around organisational design and HR people stuff. And then I became the Deputy Public Service Commissioner and was working on the Reform of Australian Government Administration, Blueprint, and uh, played around with that for a little while and then uh, did a review of the treatment of women in the Defence Department, the public mm. service side of things. That was alongside Liz Broderick's um, yeah. Skype scandal sort of uh, reviews. And when I finished that, after offering great advice, they asked me to come over as the Deputy Secretary People and implement some of my great advice. Uh, so therefore, a few years later, I'd... Um, had quite enough <laughs> and sort of retired. So I'm trying to work out what to do when I grow up. What did you like about being a public servant? Uh, every day is different, the challenges. Uh, I loved um, being uh, on the th in the cut and thrust of things. I always chased the next big thing or I chased who I wanted to work for. Uh, I am a psychologist by training. I'm, I'm interested in how people think and what makes them tick and 
public service, it's a people business. And so people often scratch their heads and say, why would you want to go and be Deputy Public Service Commissioner or run big HR teams? And essentially it's about building the capability. And I liked that. I could see, you know, I've been lucky in doing really pivotal policy work, welfare stuff, welfare to work, um, all that sort of stuff. But uh, it can all fall apart if you don't have the right people capability behind it. So that's the sort of explanation, I guess. And in terms of, you know, th- that is a, you know, a big rundown of, of a lot of projects. And as you say, you like to chase the next big thing. You're obviously very good at what you did or you wouldn't have got the opportunities. What role did communication play in your success? Well, absolutely vital, I think. I mean, I, I'm no great orator, but I sort of get the connection of what people need to understand. And so taking it from the back room of the public servants... They need to be able to understand what's being asked of them. They need to be able to explain it to the people who work with them. And then they've all got to be able to go and explain it to the citizens. Um, So when you're in frontline service delivery, that becomes absolutely paramount and you have different techniques, but you're right up against it. You you can't get away from it. They are demanding of you explanations uh, and you need to be able to explain it. Then, so that's on one level. On another, when you're actually coming up with the great policies, they get announced in the budget, you've then got to be able to explain it to the population on behalf of the government. And what were some of the principles that you, you followed in terms of the development of your communication skills and, and practice? Well, I guess, and I would think probably the best experiences we had of communicating was in Centrelink under Sue Varden, who was a pretty impressive CEO, she would implore us to walk in their shoes. So there was a lot of understand what it means for them. That's what it's all about. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about the citizens or the customers, as we would refer to them. So there would be a lot of techniques of actually listening. We would set up, and this was hardwired into the business model, where... um, workshops where customers would come and sit around and the public servants couldn't speak. They had to listen and then they had to distill what they'd heard and, you know, build it into their ongoing work practices and communication plans. So that was probably the most, you know, uh, when thinking back, that was revolutionary at the time. Um, But also I suppose it was to take every opportunity, particularly in a really dispersed organisation where you've got 300 sites around the country, you're touching every person's life basically across Australia, or at least every family. Uh, How do you get the message out there? Do you use people on the ground, you know, as with the emergence of changing technology and all that sort of stuff? You know, use whatever you can. Centrelink had its own studio you know, yeah, I remember all that, that sort well, of stuff. It's, Probably it's, still does. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been very well established. They've been yeah, you know, extremely yeah. good communicators yeah. for a long time. But w- what's your view about the, you know, more broadly across the Australian public service? It was hardwired yeah. into Centrelink. Was yeah. it hardwired elsewhere? Well, I think when I went to immigration and Andrew Metcalf took over there, he, he uh, really sort of adopted much of that as well, but really built us build a strong communications unit. Um, but also a lot of departments, when you get beaten up a lot of times, you become quite insular 
and you don't want to listen anymore because every time you listen, you're getting bad news. Um, so that was really about uh, pulling the earmuffs off and listening and getting out there with stakeholders. So a lot of that was face-to-face, you know. A lot of it was bringing focus groups together, uh, setting up stakeholder engagement sort of arrangements and strategies. Um, so that was getting in connection. And, of course, you're always afforded quite a bit of publicity per kind favour of the media, but that's not necessarily what you want. And that becomes a vexed issue then because if you are getting beat up uh, in the media, then how do you turn that story around? So I guess what I learned in a number of places is there is a real skill. There's, there's an art to this and there it's a profession. Um, but then when you think of how volatile the world is, you can't just rely on these professional two or three. You've got to empower others to try and get a message out. And, you know, when I go over to def- went to defence, I, I just think there's so much more that could be done there, but it gets in such a big machine, it's not, it's not speedy, it's not agile. And I think they're the ingredients that are really vital in this day and age. So whatever medium you use, it's got to be out there quickly, respond quickly, get on the front foot. Now, getting on the front foot's a very important part of grabbing the story and telling it in your terms as opposed to reacting to someone else's often misguided interpretation of it. But sometimes perhaps ministerial officers um, won't allow you to get on the front foot. Would that be fair to say? Correct, yep, yep. And... uh, I think that's become quite a phenomenon in the last... It's a risk-averse culture. That's a grand statement, but there's pockets of that. When you have a failure, um, the risk appetite diminishes and ministers do want to control the story. I used to often say, you know, ministers do good news and public servants do bad news, (laughs) and that's not an unfair thing. I mean, they're the ones who get elected, they put themselves out there, public servants are to deliver for them. But it would be better to have a better pact, I suppose, of trust between the two that would allow ministers to say, well, yeah, we're we're quite comfortable with you being the spokesperson on that. But, you know, I've seen places where you set up a capability, a capacity, and the ministers close it down and have it run out of their own office. Um, so that strangles the message and it strangles the capacity to be far-reaching and, and speedy. Yeah. Just on that issue of trust, what's your advice to people about building trust? Because really this, particularly for content marketing, you know, it, there is a perception of risk if indeed you know, the public service takes on the opportunity or the gift of technology which will allow them uh, to explain and to go mm. direct. Mm. Uh, but to do so, they're going to need mm. um, the support and indeed the encouragement of, mm. of political officers. So yeah. how do they go about building that trust? Mm. Well, work hard at it, but it's, you know, it's often, you know, this is at the end of the day, it's about a relationship and it's understanding where that person's coming from. Why do they have the perspective they have? Are you able to demonstrate to them that you can hear it. Um, So it really is about establishing a relationship. And, you know, I think when I second, you know, about working hard, you've got to keep, you'll get a, you'll get a, um, 
a rebuttal. You'll be told, go away, but you've just got to find another way. And also, sometimes you're just the technique you've used doesn't work. Try something else. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes it's not your voice that they want to hear. Get someone to speak on your behalf, open the door, keep at it, um, and give them a win. That's... Uh, get them to see something that they can find value in and that they benefit from. So I think it's a few little strategies around like change done, management. Sounds yeah. like you did it a few times. Had a few goes at it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm. Were you good at it? Well, for others to decide, um, I, w- I was very heartened. You know, when I told you the best CEO I worked for, she told me I was great at it. She okay. told me that I should be in religion, <laughs> that I was able to sort of uh, convince people and and negotiate in a way. But um, yeah. but I think the other thing is uh, humour goes a long way. Yeah. You know, when you can make it lighthearted, uh, and you know, bring out someone else's sense of fun as well. But it's mm. no different, is it, really, to any human mm. relationship? No. It's it's it has the, all of the components of building mm. trust with anybody, be it your local greengrocer or, you know, your friend at the local church or whoever. You know, everyone's looking for that human connection. And don't they love to talk about themselves? Yeah. You know, and so I – and as I said before, I'm I'm intrinsically interested in how people think. So you can see a person's face change when you say to them, well, what what are you up to or what what interests you and how did you get to be the way you are? And so you learn something, but they love talking about, you know, and then they love talking about their kids and they love, you know, and then you start to understand the person. Yeah, so that's sort of a flow on from your whole trust thing. And, yeah. You mentioned technology as well, which is fa- fascinating for me because technology is really disrupting every industry at yep. the moment. And I don't think government is any different. Perhaps yeah. they may perceive themselves to be different, but they're not. Yeah. So the changes are taking place in and around government. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, defence being a big edifice, hard to move, hard to be agile, hard hard to be able to adapt and adopt mm. uh, to, to different change. But aren't, aren't they going to have to? I, and I think they, they do, you know. They like, are going to get cha- – if, yeah. if they don't change, technology will change them. Well, you know, all the service chiefs have got Twitter accounts, all the uh, – um, we haven't necessarily encouraged too much Skype of late, I don't think. <laughs> but there are. The, it is moving, but it is slow. And of course, you then also have, um, you know, people who are deployed in, on ships. They don't have as much access to technology yeah. as others. But you know, when you have a workforce that ages that can be from, you know, can be blue collar to the top scientists in the country, kids out of school at seventeen up to people who age of seventy, you know. These young kids, are, as you say, are going to demand it. But I guess what in that environment, there's always the sensitivity of uh, secure information and secure networks, and that's a hamster. That will always be thus, yeah. you know. I, I reckon. Sure. Um, but where you're trying to actually uh, connect with your workforce, essentially, uh, they are, you know, they are sort of uh, using technology and like. People deployed in Afghanistan or whatever can actually connect with their families at home. Like mm. they, you know, not every five minutes, but, you know, that would have been unheard of. So it is it is changing. I, I don't think it's a sort of a, the go-to place to sort of adopt what they do. But I think the fact that 
their workforce is so variable and essentially young, uh, there'll have to be movement. Yeah. What about outside of defence and more broadly across yeah. um, the, the, the public service? You, you have a senior role in the Institute of Public Administration, so you still have your uh, fingers on the pulse. Yeah. What's your view on how well government is taking up this opportunity to, or the public service in particular, taking up the opportunity to create and publish content and to go direct mm. and to perhaps not involve um, the media mm. as much as they need to because they can now do it themselves. They can, rather than go that way through public affairs or public relations, they mm. can build relationships directly. Well, I think it sounds very attractive, you know, very necessary. I can really see how there would be benefits for you know, the human services part of the world where you have a direct relationship with so many people. And similarly, you know, the areas where dealing with students and employers and all that. I mean, a lot of really good messages are getting, not getting out there because, uh, you know, this reliance on perhaps what is an old technology or an old platform. Um, got my next... But the but just to move from there, but interestingly, uh, at at the political level, um, you know there is this lament. You know, particularly, well, you know, I suppose because we're here in Australia, we're you know closer to it, so we understand it. But there's you know discussion at the political level that our message isn't getting out, or we're not being understood, or we're not explaining ourselves well enough um, at the political level. So so why is it that we're not getting out the message as best as we possibly could? Uh, Look, I think there's this sort of maybe a a pretty tight interpretation of the roles. Um, uh, The other thing too, that was the point I was trying to remember, is you have sort of a code of conduct uh, for uh, dealing with information, whatever else, and then there was one which was developed a couple of years back of, you know, what are the rules around social media. Well, at the end of the day, it's still information it doesn't matter about the medium, but that seemed to be the obsession that, oh, now we're dealing with social media, Had something different had to yeah. occur. But it's just yeah, about it? doing what's right, yeah. you know. Um, so I think we can sort of get carried away with that. But I think that probably does play into the fact that people are a bit cons- a bit frightened of dealing with, with, with the media um, and the fact that ministers, as we've talked before, sometimes constrain who can do it. Um, and so you... You've got to challenge that paradigm, I guess, um, and sort of help them understand the benefits of different methodologies. Mm. Mm. And there's, there certainly is that opportunity, and I think probably one of the other, um, well, it's as much an op challenge as it is an opportunity, but around skills and mm. being able to have the skills to create content, to curate content, to distribute yeah. content. What's the best way to go about trying to improve the skills across the public service? And as you say, probably not just to leave it solely in the hands of the communicators, the professionals, but to disperse that responsibility more widely so that you have more people um, telling the story. Well, you know, I think what you're describing is breaking new ground. You're essentially sort of saying here's the capability set that we want from public servants and at that, this point in time, whilst we say something about in the selection criteria of communicate with influence, uh, what's that mean now? What do we want people to understand about this? So it, it would have to be uh, sort of built into job roles, built into learning and development, 
you know, I do stuff out at um, Uni of Canberra and uh, I was talking to someone yesterday, they're developing a strategic communication workshop for some department. I'm not quite sure what that means. Hopefully it embraces some of the stuff you're talking about because... But I think they're trying to grapple with the issue yeah. that there is something here that has to be cracked. Yes. Um, and what has traditionally been dished up in leadership development programs or supervise wouldn't necessarily be anything along the lines of what you're talking about. So it's it's a new it's a new capability. Mm. If you were still involved um, mm. in, in the public service and you saw this opportunity for the public service to be able yeah. to publish, to, yeah. to create, to to distribute, to, to be influential, to to use the, the various channels that are out there and to measure and evaluate their efforts. How would you go about trying to introduce the change so mm-hmm. that content marketing becomes a, a central yeah. capability of, of the public service? Well, just as you're using the content capability to explain them, you've got to explain it to yep. people. so uh, Hence I give the definition at the front of the program. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think people almost have to see and touch something. Yep. So you've got some case studies, you've yep. got some successes, yep. and that's the most powerful thing yep. is to actually tell that, use that as a story, to tell the story, and people to see the difference it makes elsewhere and say, I wonder if it could work for us. Yeah. And then, of course, you'd be able to trot out a whole heap of metrics about reach and costs and all that sort of stuff, and yep. that'll get the bean counters over the line. <laughs> um, but you sort of, it's, I think it is a new phenomenon. And also, it needs to be explained because when something new happens, people are fearful because they sort of don't really understand it and they think, oh, well, I could mess up here or whatever. So it's got to have the benefits, it's got to, what's in it for me, it's got to be something that they can see it has broader application for themselves and they can see the successes and yeah. they can see how to do it, which goes back to your question about skill. Yeah. It could be a bit overwhelming if it, um, if they didn't fully grasp that this is essentially quite easy and will add to their um, capacity to deliver on their, in their job. Yeah, well, I totally agree um, yeah. exactly that. I think it will be small steps as, mm. as we... Uh, as it takes hold, because my, yep. my firm belief is that you know this is yep. the way of the future. As uh, you know, media business models are so challenged yep. these days, um, yep. and the atmosphere is so febrile. You know, trying to have um, yep. a considered conversation or dialogue mm. uh, through a media organisation out to yep. um, the population is increasingly difficult. So, that ability to try to do it yourself. Um, yeah. to create useful, relevant, valuable content that answers the questions or meets the needs of a particular yep. audience. I think it will happen. So mm. I'm looking forward to that as, as as we take further steps towards that maturing. And, and we have seen some real change. You know, anyone who listens to the podcast will know I'm a bit of a fanboy of what they've done in the UK uh, because they had the benefit of the burning platform of, of the GFC where yep. they had to make change. It wasn't yeah. sort of optional. Yeah. Uh, what's your views on, on where Australia is in, in that sort of paradigm? O- obviously, there's challenges around, you know, budgets and, and future resourcing. 
but how much of an impact or impetus might that be in terms of adopting some of these more innovative you know, business processes? Oh, it could be. I mean, we've got the burning platform, but whether or not it's been acknowledged that this is somehow a remedy for something, I don't know that that's been as well prosecuted. It, it is interesting the way the Brits come at some things, but and I think in terms of communication, I'm digressing a little bit from your question, but I've always been very impressed with the, their language. And we would think very differently about the Brits in that sort of formal straight, you know, straight jacket type of, you know, persona. Stiff You know, all that. Um, but, you know, when you... I know I have occasion to sort of visit the Cabinet Office. I like their language. They use... And even it's like the body shop, you know, that the words. They, they call it for what it is. They don't dream up some bureaucratic term or whatever. So they clearly, it's something, you know, hardwired. From from looking in, it seems as if they value how they explain concepts. Yeah, you know, even this stuff called nudge um, uh, techniques. Yeah. Well, even pe- you know what they're getting at just by the word, not behavioural economics, you know. So even that sort of stuff tells you a little bit about they must have something going on that says to tell a story to someone we've got to do it this way so it for me it's not an an unnatural consequence that they've got to that path but you're probably quite right it was a burning platform that says we've got to go this way yeah but I haven't heard the burning platform being explained as we've got to go that way here around communication that's an interesting point you raised just about language and and the importance of language Mm. Uh, the importance of words, the importance of definition. It's one of the reasons why at the beginning of the program I like to define what we're talking about so people yeah. can sort of say, okay, yeah. well, I'm, I know I'm in the right place. Why Why aren't we as good as they are in terms of the use of language? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you would have thought we would be. And, I'm, and look, probably it, we've all known the great storytellers, but have we valued that enough? Do we value that as a capability versus, you know, some other theory or policy paper or whatever but isn't it interesting that one of the best communicators of all time Paul Keating was our prime minister and people remember yeah. things because of the yeah. imagery yes. he could create and yeah. I guess we've all known people like that and uh, just I don't know it's an interesting another interesting point that you raised though around this you know the value of the communicator yeah. Because what they did do as part of their reform program in the UK was uh, identify the communication as a profession yes. within the public service. Yep. And so therefore, its status was confirmed yep. and therefore taken more seriously. Yep. Well, and I think we're behind the eight ball on that one. I mean, you know, across the public service, you know, we've known of Hank Jongen in human services as a professional, yeah. a lot of departments would be whoever's walking past the door suddenly becomes the comms <laughs> expert. And I, I used to have this conversation, you know, we, we don't have enough regard for people who work in the people area because everyone knows people so they can do that and everyone has to communicate so anyone yeah. can do that. Well, you do it at your peril, don't you? Like you don't put uh, someone who can't add up into a CFO job. But so how do you raise... And that goes back to my sort of IPA sort of role. How do you raise the profession? And I think this is an emerging one around 
content or communication that it does get the value and be regarded as something that people need to learn and get, get good at. And how do we go about that, though? How do, how do we nudge it along so, <laughs> so we get some... Well, you, once you get these sort of little success, success pieces, but it, it is about... Ex, you can then sort of describe it yeah. in ways of jobs and then those things have to actually be... Sounds very bureaucratic, but they have to sort of be written up as such. They have to actually be part of the capability framework yep. along with the other sort of dimensions we've put to it. So there's a knowledge aspect to it, there's a sort of doing aspect to it and there's a being aspect to it. And so building it into the way we learn and the way we recruit and the way we advance people. So that's a whole big piece around workforce design. So. The Public Service Commission needs to get all over this. There you go. And take, <laughs> and take on that challenge. Yeah. Or the other, what I've known from around being around government for a while is it's often leveraging through the big places, the places that actually do have some capacity and reach and getting them to collaborate and then others collaborating with them. As in the big departments yep. who've yep. got the, yep. the grunt to actually yep. take on a task like yep. that. Like yep. who? Oh, in, in tax, Australia. human tax, services, yeah. defence. Um, yeah. yeah, but they're the big ones. Yeah. So what's next for uh, for Carmel McGregor? I know you're on the board of the uh, the Brumbies, yes, well, the, the uh, yeah. professional rugby union team here in Canberra, Australia. Do you well, enjoy that? It. Yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're a very fine bunch of men. Uh, they're a great community asset and they will win this weekend. <laughs> And the one after that and the one after that. And in yeah. terms of trying to work out what's next for you, what, where do you see those big challenges? Because you know, I know that a lot of people listening now would be thinking, okay, this is interesting. You know, she's had a great career in the public service, achieved a lot. But what's the, what's the itch that you want to scratch? Um, I'm, uh, I still am deeply interested in public service. I'm wanting – it's interesting to be able to look back in and I do a bit of work with places offering them a lot of good gratuitous advice on a number of matters <laughs> so I'm happy to do that and I've also joined the ARI board the human resource Australian Human okay. Resource Institute board so that's again another extension of my interest yep. in the profession of um, uh, people people yep. uh, and um, yeah uh, and I'll join the board of common ground which is the board here at so establishing a, a facility for homeless people, which I'm built standing on the shoulders of others who've yep. done the heavy lifting, but I'm very happy to be involved with it. And I'm doing a little bit of work here and there around women in leadership, and that's uh, an interest of mine and something I feel pretty passionate about. So it just depends how I sort of who I get involved with to prosecute those sort of things. And then I want to do a little bit of travel here and there and feed up and all the rest of it. Mm. Go so, down to the Woden Library, set up a fake email account and write in <laughs> and sort of reveal all to the Canberra Times or whoever else. Yeah. Well, Carmel, thank you very much. Congratulations on yeah. your career, oh, by the way. So. Um, yeah. A huge contribution to, to Australia over the years. And thanks for coming in and having a conversation today about an emerging issue, an important issue and an an issue that everyone listening today is uh, vitally interested in. So thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.